Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, as always, head over to officehours.global. That's our kind of primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Second hour today, we're talking audio brainstorming. What audio topics, guests, or vendors we should have on the show for future audio days. So if you want to kind of help us control the content and our subjects that you want to learn about, today is your day to pop them in. Join live to submit your suggestions right here right now. So hopefully you understand the Mukana system for putting in things. If not, you can go to the main website and kind of follow those breadcrumbs to get there. That is our second hour. We are in our first hours, means we're here to answer your questions. So Courtney, what do we have on tap for our first question today? Oh, thank you, Bill. From David Brady in New York City says, what are the best practices for shooting talent against windows? Looking to preserve the view 50 plus stories up in midtown Manhattan. NDF film, NDF acrylic inserts, and he has a link uh, to Lee Filters there about that. Yeah, absolutely. Marty, start us off. Well, um, if this is a room that you use very often and uh, you have these windows and 50 stories up, you've got lots and lots of light, depending on which direction you're going to. You may also have some sound issues from traffic below, um, eh, even at 50 stories up. I mean, Manhattan can be pretty loud, especially, uh, and... Uh, and airplanes as well. Um, ND, ND, ND film can be applied to the windows and cut down on your light. Of course, the, the critical, what you're looking for is to minimize the dynamic range, the difference in light level between the people and the background. So you can either raise the interior light level um, using video lights or cut down on the background. So either way, um, there is a product, though, if you use this room a lot, there's a product that I've, I've used before with great success. It's called Indo, like window without the W, Indo Windows. And it is a, uh, an acrylic insert that gets laser fitted into the opening. And it cuts down on both sound and thermal loss. And it can have a film applied to it. And they are friction fitted so there's no hardware and they can be removed um and they can have a film applied to them so they can be temporary or permanent sounds really interesting courtney your thoughts uh well you're on the right track there um nd film uh you, first of all you gotta before you jump off and make that purchase because the acrylic panels the four by eight foot uh acrylic panels that are nd can be nd3 nd6 nd9 that's uh one two or three stops each, and uh, they cost about 500 bucks a piece, so it's kind of pricey. So you might want to, first of all, go up there and take your camera and get a good exposure through the window and figure out what your f-stop's going to be for good exposure out the window, and then gauge the number of, uh, gauge how much uh, light you're going to need on your subject in the foreground to hit that same, at that same f-stop. So uh, you could add lights <clears throat> to the foreground, uh, person or people, depending on how big this, the setup is. Uh, or you can add the ND panels, uh, but make sure you purchase the right ones because you can't change once you've bought them. Uh, so And it gets a little expensive to make that mistake and return it because once I think you peel the cover off that acrylic, they may not take it back. There's also a thin film that they make that you apply to the window. If you use just uh, gel, uh, gel material is a lot cheaper. You can get ND6, ND9 um, for uh, two or three stops. But um, 
the problem is you see it, you know, since it's not f completely flat, you see it reflecting the lights in the room. So it, it can be kind of problematic if you're on the inside of the window, which you'll have to be because you can't hang it very easily 50 stories up without a window uh, washer's uh, thing to go outside the window. But uh, there is a film that you can apply with water. You spray water on there. It's kind of like applying uh, tinting to a window, and then you have to squeegee it down, and it'll lie flat on the surface of the window, but you got to work the bubbles out. It's a big pain. It's easier to light the person in the foreground to the light outside the window. And these days with LED lights, it's not that much heat on the person, so you can try and light it if you have a big enough lighting package first, and if that doesn't work, then you go for the indie panels. If it's going to be a permanent installation, special. And um, one of the, the other way is just bring in a fixture that has enough punch to balance them. Now, all these are really good suggestions, and we've been gelling windows for a long time. Uh, and depending on the lighting inside, you can get, for example, three-stop ND that also has CTO, color temperature orange, which if you're lighting inside with tungsten fixtures will both cut down the amount of light coming in through the window and change its color temperature so that tungsten fixtures will look correct when you're shooting in, in white balance to that. Uh, I have been more and more using fixtures like these. This is the Aperture Nova 600C. In fact, I was shooting with this yesterday in a circumstance where I had some windows in there. These new ones, this, this, these are probably fifteen dollars to $1,800 for a fixture. I've also had really good success with the uh, Light Panels line. Light Panels has the Gemini. And in both of those cases, they have enough punch to pretty well balance someone indoors against an exterior window. The only thing is, it's a lot of light. So with an absolute amateur talent, particularly if they have sensitive eyes, you have to take your time and get them used so their pupils can uh, close down enough so they're not squinting into the light a lot. But if you kind of bring them in and get them used to that and have a little bit of time for them to acclimate, uh, these can this kind of fixture brought in and turned up enough can balance against an exterior window. Jeff, you had a thought or did you want to i was that was actually my question was like how when does the punch of this increased front light really really annoy the talent so much that you need to go to cutting the light coming through the yeah, windows one of the them? things that i've learned is that if you don't do it uh on their level if you raise it up you're gonna have to have a reasonably beefy stand for these this isn't the kind of thing you want to put on a standard light stand because I think the Aperture uh, 600C that I was using yesterday probably weighs maybe 30 pounds, 20 to 30 pounds somewhere. It's a heavy fixture. And so you need a, a pretty beefy C-stand. But once you get that in place, if you raise it up till it's maybe 10 to 12 feet off the floor, you can get a nice punch down on people and they're not looking directly into the light. So there's much less squinting going on. It also helps, um, and this kind of thing, you know, I'm lit from over top. Why? Because I don't want everybody looking at my chin because that's not the most attractive part of me. So I tend to raise key lights up a bit anyway, just to help people who aren't perfect model types. So it's just a, a matter of that kind of thing. Courtney? Yeah, I was going to mention something else. If you're directly in front of the window, I hope you have a high ceiling because all your lights are going to be reflected in that glass back at you. So if you want to keep the reflection of the lights out, you have to have a high ceiling, like uh, Bill said, and put your key lights up high uh, to get the reflections out. So that's also going to be a problem. And you might have to bring a teaser in, uh, uh, which is a long piece of duvetine to block 
the overhead lights from reflecting in the glass behind you, depending upon whether the people are standing or sitting or the angle of the camera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe the camera's going to be slightly above the talent if you want to see down into the city. And bear in mind that a lot of those high-rise buildings already have tinted glass on the windows, so they're uh, infrared-absorbing glass, and they usually have a kind of a gray neutral density uh, color to them. So adjust your color temperature and your level by shooting the city out through the window and then set those settings Let's flip it back to manual and then try lighting and adjusting the color temperature in your foreground until everything looks a proper color. The one thing I would also suggest is do not ask your junior PA to go outside and put a screen on the outside of the window. 50 stories is a little too dangerous for that. That's all I'm saying. Let's go to the next question. Like me, the sunlight is coming through and it's awfully warm right now on my little face. Okay, coming in now from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, what are the best charts or cheat sheets uh, you know about for AI apps and how-tos? Thankfully, John Preto is here. John, tell us about cheat sheets for AI. Paul, there's no cheating in life. You have to just get in there and work it and uh, understand how it works. All of this, all of this prompt engineering and all these cheat sheets are all, you know, they have a limited life span because it changes so fast. And prompt engineering is going to give way to GUI interfaces eventually. So, what, I, what's the longest prompt list you've seen? Just you know, is like uh, DOS three point two. Yeah. <laughs> it was like I've seen some prompts that have been like four pages of terminology. <laughs> you wonder how anything comes out of the thing at all. I, I don't. I don't see any useful life of of these super long prompts. I can do usually a prompt within two lines that does just as good as a twenty line prompt. So interesting. Uh, Adobe. Is there, Adobe is there has an a good... AI to? Is there an AI that can help you write prompts? Yeah, we use we use we use ChatGPT four to write the prompts for Midjourney. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what we do. Um, Pretty but Adobe get a good, message. <laughs> is a good indicator of the future. If you see their interfaces and in, in what they've done in Photoshop, um, there's very little prompt engineering in those. And so they're, all that stuff's going to be integrated into the GUI eventually. I, I don't use any of those cheats. I just use them on a project on a daily basis, and that's how you learn. I'm expecting someday to get chided by the AI saying, please just leave us alone to work this out and quit trying to control us. <laughs> next question. All right. Next comes from Jeff Francis right here on the panel from Columbia, South Carolina. He says, I'm searching for a new method. Oh, excuse Sorry, a new method, a new multi-tool. Any favorites? And what's your EDC? What does EDC oh, stand man. for, Jeff? Now we're getting into close to religion here. Everyday so. carry. Everyday carry tool, multi-tool. So you've got your Gerber fans, you've got your Leatherman fans, you've got all... And, you know, they have so many models that I think it's it's so personalized. I'm carrying a Leatherman again. I had a Gerber for a while in there. Uh, I don't do as much field work, but I had mine with me yesterday because you never know when you're going to need those needle-nose pliers out on a set along with four knife blades, a screwdriver, and a corkscrew. But... Uh, there's there's all sorts of debates about these. Um, I, I had a Leatherman Wave for a while because it 
seem to fit. I like the the kind of smaller ones. The big Leatherman tools, it's it's comforting to have them on your belt if you're doing a lot of heavy outdoor on-set work. But I don't do that much of that anymore. So the smaller ones like the Wave, I find a little more useful around the house just in general. Uh, That's how I feel about it. I think I truly believe everybody is an individual about this. Chris Fenwick, you're, you're heavily into tools. What are your thoughts? I don't know about that, but I think a pocket knife that you are, that you know how to use and is handy and nearby is always a good thing. Uh, I, I was at John's house a couple of years ago and something happened and I went, whoosh, and he goes, where did that come from? I was like, I have a pocket knife. Um, I and recently snapped the blade to get a screwdriver too. And uh, I was recently uh, introduced to, there's this Klein knife. Jeff, that has this curved blade, and I kid you not, it is my favorite blade for breaking down Amazon boxes to get them in the recycling bin. It is so sharp, and the curve in it uh, really bites into the cart. Like, it's wonderful. Uh, Keenan Campbell introduced me to it, and I love that blade. It lives in the door pocket of my truck. It's always close by. It's like a hybrid between a knife and a linoleum cutter, which does a great job. What's a, li- linoleum. What's a linoleum cutter? I, I don't even know it, what that It's is. a curved blade with a big stubby handle. And for people who have to work on floors and carve, you know, carve linoleum shapes, it, 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 you reminded me when you were talking about that of how well that does its job because of the curve. Or, or carpet. It's the same as a carpet, carpet knife. Yeah, carpet knife. Yes, absolutely. Jeff, uh, more thoughts? So... I've kind of settled over the last couple of years on the Utiliki, which is a little tiny thing that clips on like a key onto your key ring. And oh, it's got the so screwdrivers and a bottle opener and a, and a serrated knife and a plain blade knife, um, but does not have uh, the pliers and the, the heftier screwdriver. Like when you, when you need kind of a, you know, you need to pull a piece of gear out of a rack and you need a, you know, Phillips number two. And you don't have any screwdrivers having something. So I'm looking for for people's recommendations. So there's a bunch in the chat. I'm going to go take a look at those. The, the yeah, other thing about this Klein knife is the blades are replaceable. So you don't have to bother with a bunch of, you know, sharpening voodoo. I will say there's nothing more satisfying than having exactly the right tool when you have to do a job. So I, I res- it resonates with me when you're saying when you're cutting down cardboard boxes, because we all have to do that. And to get something that really does that well just makes the job so much easier. Uh, Marty Adius has a thought. Hey, Jeff, I've have had one of those on my key ring for many years. It's a really handy thing. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't have a favorite. I have a, a, a collection. I seem to collect these things. Somehow they, you know, just accumulate <laughs> in my go box. Uh, in all different sizes and shapes and tools, you know, I've... Uh, uh, the the file comes in handy sometimes and uh, different kinds of screwdrivers and different tools. I have one with a hammer on it. <laughs> it's heavy and it's bulky, but... Flathead know. or ball peen? Just wondering. Uh, flathead. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, okay. it doesn't have an, a nail puller on the other side, though. <laughs> oh, okay. No claw. Uh, Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I used I carried used to carry the uh, uh, Leatherman Charge with the nineteen tools on it. You can see them all there because uh, it has the uh, Phillips drivers and the slotted driver and the you know all the good stuff. And I used to carry a little Victorinox um, mini 
Swiss Army knife on my keychain. But after 9-11, you can't do that anymore. In fact, if you're looking for these multi-tools, the best place to look is find some guy that's a TSA guy who has access to all the ones they collect at the airport because they have thousands of them. (laughs) I bet they do. Jeff Francis. You want to come back? Yeah, Peter Moore brings up a good good point in the chat is like what can you take uh what can you take in your carry-on and what can you take checked of all of these um because rules uh, change and that's a tough call it's a good thing to remember if you're traveling for work you know leather man has to be these. checked by the way yeah yeah i think if you put them in a kit and you check them in luggage they may show up on radar but they won't take it away because you don't have access to it so yeah but not on your carry-on bags i've had trouble with that and lost a few tools along the way hopefully that helped you jeff uh get an idea of the lay of the land let's move to the next question okie dokie coming in from um john uh agapelos in sydney australia he says hello i have two synology uh network address storage uh on the same network and trying to get snapshot application working. Uh, When I create a replication from number one to number two, it doesn't allow me to enter uh, credentia. It goes straight to authenticate. How can I reset this? There's a direct question. Yeah, this is going to be one of those. Synology is a is a well known brand, and everybody that I heard who are in who who is in the Synology world says they do a good thing. I think this is one that you may need specific help from the Synology people, or at least somebody who does a lot of work with them. John Preto, do you have any thoughts on this? I just wanted to say hi to John Agapitos from Sydney. He's a colorist and a compositor, and he's fantastic. And I haven't oh, well, seen him right. around in a long time. He used to be in after hours all the time. How you doing, sir? Well, good. And so welcome back and welcome to the question. I wish we had uh, some of our Synology, Synology users who might have an, an off, uh, you know, off the cuff way to, to fix this. It, it, sometimes these problems can be specific to, an, to how things are set up. I, when you say it doesn't work and wants you to enter credentials, I always think of authentication and just there, there's something missing in the overall. It doesn't see things and, and needs to be blessed, so to speak. We run into that a good little bit in software. So uh, I wish I could help you more, but that's where we are today. We're going to go to the next question. Coming in from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, Patrick Schoen says, I'm looking to replace the cameras used for our church's live television broadcasts each week. We currently use uh, 6X Hitachi block cameras uh, with E&G lenses on PT heads. Uh, or pan tilt heads, op, uh, opinions on the Sony FR7 for live broadcast. Recommendations of others to consider? Chris Fenwick, you want to help out? Yeah, Patrick, what I would say is that um, likely those cameras will last longer than one week. So I don't think you need to replace them each week. They're reusable. <laughs> uh, I, Hitachi block camera, that's an interesting way. On pan tilt heads, I can see the reason why they would have originally been specified, but most of us kind of have gone to more commercial kinds of cameras. Marty Adius, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I would uh, uh, wonder how good the, P, the PT heads are. Um, <clears throat> some are much better than others. And I can see the appeal of using a, uh, a camera that has interchangeable uh, ENG lenses, um, but especially if the cameras are really far back in the room and you, you've got to really zoom in. Um, but if you're going to replace them, I would take a serious look at 
the well the, the FR7 I haven't seen it myself I haven't played with it myself but I don't know anybody who hasn't liked it uh, and it has that advantage of, of being a PTZ camera with um, the ability to put standard lenses on it but I would look at the Canon Panasonic and even bird dog PTZ cameras uh, which all look great you know and, and available with four 4k outputs um, to see if they will fit the needs of you know the range and distance and uh, capabilities yeah I think you know if you're going to change anyway if you've decided these block cameras are just uh, past their prime and it's time to do something the the pluses on the Sony side everybody understands that their auto zoom is pretty amazing our auto uh, focus so if you're at a long throw and out there at the end I would feel really good about the fact that they have such great auto focus everybody says that now I'm hoping you're not outside the range of that and you're still working but I don't think so I think it's internal to them uh, that and their low light capability is exceptional exceptional. Uh, you may, like many churches, have lit for video, and this isn't an issue, but if you do candlelight services or something like that, I would think that Sony's would be a great choice to get you into that kind of frame. So, next question. This one comes in from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. He says, can you explain what the process of normalizing audio is, and how does it alter the sound? Let's start with Marty and then go to Jeff. Marty? All right. Well, this may work differently in, you know, different uh, DAWs, but um, the way I understand m most of them are working is what normalizing does is it is it samples the entire track, finds where the highest peak is, and then moves everything down equally so that the peak isn't over zero dB full scale. Doesn't do anything to the sound. It just adjusts that level. Uh, now, if you're not doing any kind of limiting or compression on those peaks, then that could move the uh, average energy and uh, average level down more than you would prefer. Um, so you would want to do some processing, some peak detection, and make sure that you have things under control so that the overall volume level, the integrated volume level, is up where you want it. Jeff Francis? Yeah, kind of what Marty said is it scans through and finds the the highest peak. Generally, normalization is looking to raise gain. So it's going to find if the highest peak in your entire sound file is 10.2 dB below full scale, the highest thing you can possibly have, it'll turn up the entire audio equally 10.2 dB so that the peak hits that. What's I don't, I don't find normalization useful because you simply have a gain fader. You can turn something up by yourself and it doesn't actually work. Most of them work only on peak. And so peak doesn't actually do you a good job of making things all the same, which is kind of what the word normalization kind of makes you sound like. It's not actually matching average levels. Um, there are, I think Isotope has a ability to do um, matching gain by average level. So it measures the actual integrated LUFs throughout the entire file, and it uses that, but that's not typically what is called normalization. Normalization uses peak, and peak is kind of worthless for matching things. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree exactly with what Jeff Francis said. Usually it, it's a process of instead of bringing down, bringing up, because if something is recorded too high above your peak level, it could be clipped already. And once it's clipped and beyond the uh, resolving power of your bit depth, uh, 
bringing it down doesn't help much. It's still going to be distorted. So uh, what it'll do is it'll leave it at the top level and it'll bring everything up somewhat. But uh, it won't if it's already at the top level, right? It normally takes the peaks that are the highest peak below clipping and brings it up to uh, the zero level or the, the peak level for that particular file and brings everything else up uh, an equal number of dB, thereby equalizing it. But... Um, it uh, it doesn't help too much depending upon if you got one really loud piece. It's not really going to help you very much. It'll you, you like like Jeff said. You have to use averaging rather than uh, normalizing. And Willick, uh, yeah, just to to add on to um, what's been said already. Um, it's uh, and I think what what I what everyone's saying maybe is that it's proportionate. So everything stays in proportion to itself, which includes the noise floor. So when you normalize something, it's bringing everything up um, across spectrum. It's not like a compressor where it is uh, going to change um, those peaks in relation to the noise floor. Uh, but uh, just to touch on something Jeff said with loudness normalization, where it's using the average, one thing you have to um, be aware of is you could go above peak level if you are using a process that does loudness uh, normalization because there may be one single peak that's hot, way higher than everything else that doesn't um, impact the average in a way that wouldn't, um, when it's brought up uh, to your target, uh, prevent clipping. So just something to be aware of. If you are looking for something that does loudness normalization, uh, you could still end up clipping your signal. Jeff Francis wanted to come back in. Yeah, I'm. I'm want to thank Ed for bringing that up because he used, if you noticed, he very carefully used the term normalization when we speak about something that uses peak, and he used the term loudness normalization when he used something that looks at the average level, and so loudness normalization is what uh, music streaming services do uh, to match song to song to song to song, and Ed spoke about the fact that you can potentially clip something, so some services. Uh, will only lower gain to make loud songs match other songs, and some will actually raise quiet songs, and then they have to apply uh, peak limiting, which is actually going to change your audio. So really key that we are very careful about what terms we use. So normalization is just pure gain based on peak. Loudness normalization is gain based on average loudness. Ed, you want to come back and clarify? Uh, I just want to touch on the second half of that question was how does it alter the sound? Uh, peak normalization shouldn't alter the sound at all. It's only changing level where loudness uh, normalization, as Jeff just said, uh, in the case of a streaming service, um, if you use loudness normalization um, with some sort of peak limiting, that will uh, change your sound because you are processing after you've done the normalization and the streaming services are doing that. So peak normalization shouldn't change your sound. It's going to be louder so if you did not adjust your volume control on the system you're listening to after peak normalization, your noise floor might sound louder, but it's not any louder in proportion to the peaks. So just the second half of that question was altering sound. It Normalization shouldn't alter the sound if you're doing peak normalization. Loudness normalization, if there's processing after to control peaks, then you, you might have some alteration. 
All right. We've learned a lot from the discussion. Um, my turn to say, hey, if you haven't uh, popped a question in there, we've got a good number of questions for today already, but you're always welcome to put them in, particularly because even if you have a late entry question, if it gathers a lot of votes, it's going to still be talked about as quickly as is possible. And uh, so your voting counts as well as putting your questions in. And thank you always for all of the questions you put in. Next question. Sorry, I was break. I'm breaking up. I'm breaking up. Sorry, I was breaking up here. Uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asks: Discord versus Slack versus discourse. Which one excels for one conversation, two relationships, three video calls, and four content? And he put a link there to uh, the discourse. I think. A lot of conditionals on this. This is interesting. Um, relationships, I would tend to go with Discord for that only because, and I, I, I'm going to write out front, I don't use Discourse, so I've never, I don't have very much information with that. I've used both Discord, we use that here on the show for our back end. The things I like about it is that it's time persistent, which means that uh, the conversation is recorded as you're going through it. So if I'm out on a shoot for a day and I come back, I can see everything that's gone there. Slack, to me, it, it has the same kind of thing, but Slack, to me, seems like a corporate, um, more corporate, more everybody needs to be able to independently push messages to each other and to the group in a way that the Discord seems more community oriented and Slack to me always has felt more corporate oriented. I, I guess maybe it could be possible that there are people who do private conversation slacks, but I've always run into that as I'm coming to be part of a crew and they've told me that, uh, you know, we do all of our chatter on Slack, so here's your chat, here's your Slack authentications, and please pay attention because when we have notes for the next day or whatever, it's going to come through your Slack channel. So that's how I feel about them. Uh, others maybe, and I guess right now we must not have anybody who understands discourse particularly, although that sounds like more maybe a thoughtful um, people putting in ideas and people commenting on them. Who knows? Who knows? I don't. I'm sorry. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, he says, would Angry Audio's C6 processor be the tool you'd want for consistent audio levels in a church stream to Zoom with original sound on? And he has a link there. Marty, what are your recommendations? So I, this is an interesting uh, question and a little bit different than Samuel's question about normalization. And I just wanted to highlight the differences that in norm, when you're doing normalization, you're generally working in post-production with recorded tracks. And uh, but the what uh, what this is, is a live processor similar to how uh, what's used in radio for live broadcast for conditioning sound. So it's a multiband processor uh, that breaks up the audio spectrum into four different bands uh, and can process each one individually. So it does compression, limiting, uh, noise gating, whatever you want it to do. Plus it also does loudness um, and several other processing for, for for keeping the audio at a consistent level uh, without going uh, into peaks or overmodulation and uh, keeping the energy up. So it optimizes the audio for uh, for transmission. And yeah, this is a great tool to use, but you don't want to, at the same time, you don't want to think of it as a magic box and totally rely on it to um, make 
to correct all of the mistakes that you're doing in mixing. So you, you want to give it a good mix. Um, you want to make sure that your preamps are uh, properly set, your mix levels are properly set, you want to get your gain staging and your EQ properly set. Um, and then this will do the finalizing for Optimum Broadcast. Jeff Francis. Picking off what Marty said about mix, the most common thing where you're going to need, where you're feeling the need for this in a church service stream is the difference between spoken word and music. Um, in sitting in the sanctuary, music is tends to be much louder than the spoken word because when it's spoken word, everyone's sitting and listening. When it's music, the congregation is participating in song. So when that goes out to the stream, you're going to need the feed of the spoken word to be much louder than it is in the house mix. So you need to have a separate mix for the stream. And that's what Marty's talking about is get the mix right first. Don't rely on some processor that's automated to try to boost up your low level of your spoken word. Sounds like uh, what Alex talks a lot about is basic ball handling skills. If you if you get your basics correct, then everything in the post process becomes easier than if you're trying to correct deficiencies in a mix by adding post processing. Uh, at least that's what I hear in part out of that. Let's go down to the next one. This one comes in from Paul Wallace once again in Austin, Texas. He says Meta Platforms plans to launch a web version of its microblogging app Threads early this week. Uh, that's the biggest new feature to be introduced. Will this change the game? Oh, that's always a tough question to answer, Paul. Uh, no one knows what's going to change the games. I'm really doubtful. I, you know, and, and maybe this is just the way I deal with all the social media platforms. I, they're, they become more and more problematic over time for me because, you know, typically the people who have the loudest voices are the ones who are either angry or, or promoting something and want to shout at you all the time saying, come on in to see this. It's great. And really what I'm looking for is social media outlets that, I trust that I don't feel like they're trying to constantly shove content of one form or another on one polarized part or another down. But we always we all know that problem of, you know, everybody turns their head when you drive past the accident. So for, I think, bad marketers uh, and bad pundits and bad people, one of the things that they can do to get more eyeballs is to be as controversial as possible, as edgy as possible, because people will look for the accidents. So, um I'm I'm I, I social media and I are having a a difficult time now and I think it's going to go on for a while as these things try to shake out. I don't know if threads are going to change that or not. Courtney, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm not a social media gadfly either. Uh I uh, I had Twitter and I think Threads was launched uh by Zuckerberg to counter the Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and changing it to X. And it had a big uh, a big rush of uh, people moved over from their Facebook accounts or Meta accounts, uh, but then it dropped off, didn't it? Uh, quite a bit, to consider in the last few weeks or several weeks. Yeah, like so eighty-five sure. or ninety percent. It's yeah, crazy. Like eighty-five. So now maybe a web version. They're thinking that well, if you don't have to run the app, if you can just run it in a browser, that'll bring people back. But I don't think it's going to help the uh, the fleeing of the platform. That's yeah, weird. You know, a community reputation takes a long time and a lot of careful planning to build. 
Uh, and I've known this because I've been dealing with users groups and things like that, small communities of people. And they're really kind of, the, the tone is ten, tends to be set by whoever is in charge. And they can say things like we've said here, you know, there's certain things that we just don't do. We don't talk about a couple of subjects and we do things to keep this being an, a welcoming and positive environment for everybody who shows up and to keep our focus on not so much the emotions of the people talking, but on factual information. We want people to be able to trust the voices you're hearing here. Once you lose that, it's really hard to get it back. And I think some of the social media sites keep running into that. And it, it's not just the two we're talking about in general here. All of them have these ebbs and flows and, you know, something comes up and the PR teams don't uh, deal with it very quickly. And the next thing you know, everybody thinks that this service, whatever it is, is always this kind of thing, even if that's not necessarily true. It's hard to, hard to manage reputation in the world where everybody's on 24-7. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Scott Halver in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He says, is there a second best interface behind the MX Pre for an MV7 into a computer? Chris Fanwick, start us off. Scott, you know that this room doesn't do well with second best. Um, I will tell you this. Uh, a lot of people in this community have used the Flow 8, and I will say that the routing and the software for it, uh, I have enjoyed watching it. I've not touched one. About the Mix Pre, um, this is a really good example. So I, I don't think the Mix Pre is a good mixer. I think it's a very complicated mixer. It, if without the help of uh, Mickey in, in uh, office hours, I would not have been able to figure it out. It's immensely powerful. It's really powerful. Very, I think it's very difficult to use. I didn't buy it because it was a great mixer. I bought it for the noise reduction, which by the way, also costs even more money, but that's another story. Uh, the Mix Pre, in my opinion, is a really good example of buy once, cry once. I'm really glad I have it. I'm an editor. I'm sitting in front of almost 100 terabytes of data, and you don't hear my hard drives. I don't think you do. Um, and that's why I bought it. And so um, I'm glad I have it. I waited a long time to get it. I was super impressed with it. Um, but in terms of other mixers, of course, there's a bunch of other mixers. And I know that a lot of people here have used the Flow 8 and enjoy it. I'll leave it at that. But uh, this is, a, for me, for me, buy once, cry once. Jeff Francis. The MV7 has an interface built into it. Is that the second best one? Okay. Maybe it's the first oh. best one. There you go. If that's a criteria for you, yeah, it can run USB or XLR balanced out, as I recall. So yeah. that would why, be a... why complicate matters until you need to. Cordy Gooden, your thoughts? Well, if you want to apply effects or something to it that you don't have in your whatever your USB interface to your computer is, the uh, uh, Rodecaster Pro 2, which is I'm, what I'm using, has plenty of gain, has 70 dB gain. So it's pretty clean, so it could handle the uh, XLR output of that uh, dynamic microphone pretty well uh, without increasing too much of the system noise, without hearing too much of the system noise. Uh, the reason, like uh, Chris says, the reason a lot of people are using the Mix Pre is because of noise assist, which is its noise reduction uh, adaptive noise reduction, and uh, you don't have that in the uh, in the Rodecaster Pro yet, but it is a uh, you know software based mixer, so uh, not software based, but you know firmware based mixer. It's a hardware piece of hardware, but they could change the firmware to incorporate 
uh, noise reduction. I'm expecting that soon. <clears throat> Are you listening, Road? So uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that will come up. And, it, and it's uh, about the same price as a Mix Pre 3 without noise assist. There you go. Um, interfaces and microphones are just a strange thing. I'm going to tell you a little tiny story just because I was talking about it last night. I was on location shooting and that we had a sound mixer there. And we got in one of our breaks talking about microphones. And I was telling him that on, on this show, I tend to use the Sennheiser MK416. But if I'm doing voiceover at my desk, I tend to pull this microphone and switch over to my Neumann TLM-103. And I have found as I've gone back and forth, daily working on this microphone and then switching to the uh, TLM-103 for the audiobook narration stuff that I do, I perform slightly differently. And it's that what I hear has more transparency, more sensitivity to small things. So I perform less equally. Is that a good term for it? When I'm doing a character or something like that for the audiobook, I find I can whisper more and I can I can emote more with the extra sensitivity of the way the TLM-103 sounds for me, as opposed to I'm announcing most of the time and I'm trying to kind of cut through. And this microphone is good for that kind of cutting through kind of things. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that 416 are used a lot. They're really, um, they really kind of put your voice out front of things. Every microphone has characteristics. Now, that doesn't mean that a great microphone in the hands of somebody who doesn't do this all the time will give you that quality. It's like I can sit down on a Bosendorfer piano or a honky-tonk piano in a bar, and I will play equally badly on both because I'm not a pianist. A excellent pianist who plays classical music will completely understand the difference in touch and utility and expression and all of those things on those two different pieces of equipment because they're that skilled. So for a general person talking on broadcast, I think tools like these, it's the golden age. There are a lot of tools, and the Shure MV7 is certainly way up there and a very popular tool that can do that. I wouldn't use it for my character work simply because I think the extra refinement and sensitivity of a large diaphragm condenser well amplified allows me to feel differently when I'm performing. That's my two cents. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else. Ed, you had a last comment on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm using an SM7B right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I've used it with a few different, sorry, <clears throat> pardon me. I've used it with a few different uh, interfaces. And, um, you know, it's having the gain. I think, uh, I think it was Jeff who mentioned it. Um, uh, or maybe Courtney, somebody who mentioned ha having enough gain in the interface to uh, to get the uh, this microphone, you know, loud enough because it's a, a lower um, lower output mic. So I have a cloud lifter in between my microphone, and I'm running into a console, uh, you know, a, a Yamaha QL1 right now. But I've put that in front of other interfaces. There's other devices like the FET head as well that give you a clean boost of gain. So if you have an interface already. Maybe adding one of those might give you what you're looking for as far as, uh, you know, if there's something you're not getting, if you're not getting enough gain out of it. But um, as everyone else said, the Mix Pre, it's it's for the noise reduction. So if you're looking for something like that, then then the Mix Pre is the way to go. But if you're looking for just a boost, then, you know, maybe a cloud lifter or fet head or something similar will get you what you want out of that particular microphone. That's why we're always talking about mic chains, audio chains, and there's a gazillion devices to swap in and out. And, you know, you learn your ears, improve your ears so that you can hear what you're what you're looking for. And 
I think it'll always be like that. Let's see. Um, uh, it's the right time for my second announcement about the fact that if you uh, want to get questions into the queue, we have more capacity here in the system. The system has almost infinite capacity, but once you put your question in, uh, the voting on it determines how high it gets. So even a late coming question, if people are really interested in that, they'll vote it up and that voting up will bring it to the top. When we have too many to handle, we send them back. So if you've had a question that you had in the system and you didn't have it answered, uh, just look in your notes section in the service and you'll probably find that question. And we very much suggest that you just hold on to that question the next time you're here on a panel put the question back in. It may just be that the audience listening that day had other priorities based on things, and your question will do really well the second time it comes around. Let's go to our, oops, I see Courtney has raised his hand on that last question before we move on. Courtney, did you have a thought? Um, I thought I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm things moved on my screen. Yeah, that's right. They, they do that. So let's go to the next question. All right. Um, and this one comes in from James Babbitt in your neck of the woods, San Diego, down there, Bill. It says, I used a Sennheiser EV100G3 wireless stick mic for a teacher. He said he felt depleted after the meeting and that two people said they felt ill when I turned on the system. Have you heard of any other reports like this when using a wireless mic? This is scary. Chris Fenwick, tell us. Uh yeah, James, I, what I'll tell you is that um, from experience, I know that in my family alone, there are people that are hypersensitive to various electronic or audio things. For example, my mother, um, there are certain fans that just immediately send her into a, a tailspin. Uh, I have good friends that were working in Hawaii at the convention center when one of the cellular companies rolled out their, their 5G system. And when they fired up these test transmitters in the auditorium, and I know that sounds crazy, but they did put up antennas or something that immediately a couple of the crew members uh, went south, like uh, they can sense it. Now, I know that sounds like, you know, some crazy conspiracy thing, and I don't mean to sound like that, but... It is very possible that certain people are much more sensitive to, and it's not possible, it, I think it's pretty well proven, that some people are very sensitive to electronic interference. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. I think the percentage of people that become like debilitated by it are very, very small. But when it comes to you know being concerned about other people's comfort, you, you kind of have to trust their uh, input. It could be a problem. Marty Adius. And while everything that Chris said is true, um, you have to look at what the power, the RF power that you're emanating into the airwaves is. Uh, people who live under high tension power lines um, uh, can be sensitive. That's a well-known thing. Uh, people who live near microwave towers and satellite transmit towers uh, and dishes uh, can be sensitive. That's true. Um, putting a high-powered uh, antenna and transmitter in a room, I think, would be, you know, for, for outside transmission, I think would be kind of short-sighted. Um, but these transmitters 
especially if there's only one. These transmitters have an extremely low RF power output, um, 30 milliwatts maximum. And while I won't deny that some people could be that sensitive to it, the chances of having three people in the same room that are that sensitive, there are so many things that could cause somebody to feel ill in a room, anything from air quality to the carpet cleaning materials to fresh paint, um, so many things. Uh, to point to a single wireless transmitter, I would be skeptical, maybe. <laughs> That's a perfectly good word to use. Uh, Jeff Francis, your thoughts? I'm going to head in a different direction because I don't think it's wireless uh, power that people are feeling. I think you may have a extremely uh, high frequency noise caused by this wireless. So if you have ever been where there's something up near the neighborhood of 20 kilohertz, so not ultrasonic, it's still audible, but up near the top of that, um, most people will not perceive it as sound, but it will. you will feel depleted after it because it does like burn energy out of you. So I would check this for some kind of spurious, uh, ul not ultrasonic, very, very high frequency noise that is somehow being created by this wireless. Um, so a quick, you know, putting that on a scope would tell you that right away. Courtney? Also, you could get, maybe it was just a boring speech the teacher was talking about. But uh, he, the other way is you could test it by, if it, if they are using, the, it didn't say whether they're using the microphone for amplification or for recording. So if they're just using it for recording and it's not being amplified in the room, then Jeff Francis's uh, 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 suggestion might not be the case. And like Marty said, 30 milliwatts in the 516 to 777 megahertz range, which is where these... G3s operate in, you got to think, you know, there's probably 30 people in that room carrying uh, cell phones that are working at 1.9 or 1.2 gigahertz up in that range at about four times the 30 milliwatts output occasionally, depending upon how far away they are from the cell tower. Uh, that, you know, so if they're sensitive to RF, they'd probably be a lot more sensitive to all those cell phones that are really close to them than that microphone at the front of the room that's outputting 30 milliwatts. Uh, so a way to test it would be to pretend to turn on the microphone and a turn down the, uh, turn down the amplifier, or turn off the amplifier and see if anybody complains, uh, and, or B pretend to turn on the microphone and, uh, and see if anybody complains with, uh, you know, if you're recording, just pretend to turn on the microphone and see if anybody complains. If they the do, it's in their head. <laughs> uh, Ed Willick. Uh, I, I lean towards uh, Jeff Francis's uh, kind of deduction of look at something else in the system. Um, you know, RF, there's a, you know, RF uses a pilot tone uh, and it cuts off, uh, I think it's 17K so that you're not having, you know, it shouldn't, this, the microphone itself shouldn't be putting out something ultra high frequency, but there could be something else in the system that you guys were using that was, and people, you know, point to what they think is a issue. So uh, they know, oh, I wasn't feeling good when I was using that mic. Maybe it's that mic, but that could just be a symptom of a, you know, an unrelated uh, symptom uh, to a different problem that is not as obvious. So I would point to looking at into the system, see if there's noise there when, uh, as uh, Courtney just said, you know, give them the placebo and, uh, you know, or try going to a wired microphone and see if you get the same results. 
Um, but I would say it's something somewhere else in the system. Um, cause again, 30 milliwatt, even, uh, as I think, uh, Mickey pointed out in the chat was, uh, is not a lot, uh, compared to all of the other RF we are bombarded with on a daily basis. Chris, you want to wrap things up? Yeah. And I'll go back to what I said in the beginning that you, you, you Logically, it doesn't make any sense, but there are people that are hypersensitive. Also, we're talking a little bit about correlation versus causation. And there is a great episode of Better Call Saul, where Saul tricks a guy on the stand, who uh, his brother actually, who claims that he has a aversion to electricity and he had had a pickpocket uh, guy put a cell phone in his pocket earlier in the day and he was able to prove that his brother his brother's problems were all in his head so anyway great show we are complicated beasts thank you very much let's go to the next question from douglas carmichael he says when using zoom for a church service would you want to use zoom events or a zoom webinar Boy, that's a complicated question, Douglas. And Alex is really the expert on here about which of those um, is might be the best circumstance. Marty, could you help him out a little bit? Yeah. So Zoom events, I mean, uh, um, Zoom events have certain you know features and advantages for certain types of events. Like if you want to sell tickets, if you want to do pre-registrations, if you want to uh, uh, f- for commercial events, I'm not sure of the value I, I don't know if there's a lot of value there for a church service that happens every week um, where you have members and I don't know whether you whether or not you want to publish the zoom link um, uh, zoom webinars would be perfectly appropriate zoom meetings with the uh, focus features where you don't even show everybody who is not uh, a panelist um, and doesn't have their camera turned on. Uh, but with uh, spotlighting and things, you can control pretty much everything that people see. Um, so I think, you know, most churches that I know, you know, that's perfectly fine for. Let's go to the next question. This one comes in from uh, Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. He says, the consensus in Discord is to turn off the X32 rack between uses. Any suggestions for remotely turning it on and off? Courtney Gooden, start us out. Well, there's a number of, uh, I don't have an X32, so maybe John can, somebody who has one can let us know this. If the power fails and comes back on, does it come back on? If it does, uh, or do you have to hit a button to relaunch it, uh, to reboot it? Uh, if you don't have to hit the button to reboot it when there's a power failure, you could just use one of these little uh, Wi-Fi control modules that has a relay in it that switches it on and off and works with uh, an app on your phone or it works with uh, Amazon Alexa or the Google Home uh, directly off of Wi-Fi. So that's what I use for turning my printers on remotely and everything else works great. Chris Fenwick. Chris, I'm going to be one of those annoying panelists that says, I don't know anything about this, but I still want to talk. Um, a couple of things. Um, number one. Hey, that's my job. <laughs> can, sorry. can I continue, I Bill? I couldn't Yeah, right? Yet. Okay. So, um, teasing. A uh, couple of things. One, I totally agree that some gear just wants to be shut off. I know that John Prado and I have exactly the same computer, and he has more like persnickety little issues with his than I tend to. I turn mine off every day, so he doesn't. 
Um, also, I saw this recently, and I don't think that this is uh, usable in your situation, but there is a HomeKit-enabled module that you can screw onto a wall, and it just has a little finger that goes boop, 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 boop. When, when you trigger it with the software, boop, boop, and it will actually push a button for you. Boop, boop. Yeah, uh, I have no idea what it's called, but it might be worth looking into if you need something. It does to make that sound, though, doesn't it? It does. It goes <laughs> boop, boop. Yeah. Please tell me somebody has sampled this and we're going to make it part of the office hours. Uh, Marty Adius. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. So, <laughs> all right. So, if you're not going to use your mixer for days, then, you know, if, you, if it's a church and you're only using it on Sunday, one or two days a week, then, you know, there's no point in, in in burning in that time on the components when it's not being used so i would shut it off if you use it every day and it just sits idle overnight i've had um x32 racks installed in businesses where they ran without ever shutting it off for many many years and and that's not a problem there uh you know turning it on and off when you turn a device like that on uh, it there's a, a power surge that you know uh, application of electricity and the whole thing booting up can be stressful if it's you know repeatedly done day after day after day after day for years and years and years and years. There's a lot less stress on the electronics if it just sits there idling. So um, you know there's a trade-off between how much time is it going to be idling because components do age as they as they get used versus what's the risk of turning it on. Um, as for uh, remotely turning on and off, there are, uh, you can get power strips that are commercial grade, industrial grade, that will mount in a rack with software and internet control where every individual outlet can be individually controlled over the network. And they can have schedules, pre-made schedules applied to them. So they will turn on automatically at certain times, turn off automatically at certain times, or you can do it manually. And they will also give you lots of uh, tele telemetric data on current usage, power usage, voltage, uh, historical data, if, if that's useful to you. But these things are available if you want to have remote control over any piece of equipment in your rack. Uh, Ed, can we do it quick? Yeah, um, yeah. It's just, just what uh, Marty was just talking about: power sequencing. Um, I used to operate a venue that had a plug-and-play venue within it, and uh, I set up uh, at the time. There were these old Furman uh, power sequencers, uh, one on either end. It used a, a relay with a five volt and a switch, so you could press the switch. It turned the system on in the right order where. It turned on the mixer and then it turned on the amps one minute later and things like that. So uh, look into power sequencing. Nowadays, you know, they're super sophisticated where they are controllable over IP and you have that control of which order each outlet comes on and things like that. So um, there's definitely options for you. 
Thanks very much. We are about to transition into our second hour here. And so uh, some programming notes before we launch it. First of all, most of our regular viewers know the Mucana Q&A system that we use here. If you don't, please dive into it. Do a little searching. Go to the website. You'll find some links there. Uh, That happens every day, and that's how you interact with the show. Uh, Every Wednesday, so it is today, there's also something specific I wanted to bring to your attention. It's 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's 10 p.m. Eastern. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, We're bringing theater artists from around the globe into a conversation about live theater in a digital world. Uh, That is on tonight. So if you're interested in theater, particularly the technical aspects of it, uh, check where the website is. The link should be in the notes in uh, our website. Coming up, uh, we've got camera rigging tomorrow. We'll be talking about cheese plates, quarter 20s, things like that. Uh, on Friday, we'll be talking custom computing with Puget Systems. They're a configurator of high-performance PC systems for media production. Uh, and throughout the course of the rest of the uh, day here, we're going to be talking about all sorts of things. We have a long schedule, and on the website, you can see kind of what every day is oriented towards. Monday, uh, we talk about kind of business issues and so forth. Uh, that takes us. We're going to be heading into our second hour now, so stand by. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Today, Wednesday, is audio today, um, particularly audio brainstorming day. So what we're going to be doing today is talking to both our panelists and those of you who have interest in our audio day. If you have topics, um, ideas, things that you'd like to see discussed, we can make those the, the kind of focus of shows coming up, but we have to know that. So in the Q&A, if you will use the second hour topic and put in your suggestions, uh, we are looking for ideas as to what you'd like us to cover here on the show on our Wednesday sessions in the coming weeks, months, and years. So um, I'm also going to ask, kind of go around the panel a little bit and see if anybody has any ideas. And I see Marty has raised his hand. So Marty, what are your thoughts about programming notes for coming up for the audio day? Whoops, I hear muted. I just wanted to highlight for everybody that um, uh, I am on a the audio council, audio day council, along with other people here and people who are not here. And there's a council for each of the different days that we cover different topics. And what we on the audio council do is we get together every Wednesday after the show and we talk about, well, what's coming up? What, uh, what topics do we want to talk about? We actually do the scheduling and we are, we're doing scheduling like, uh, two months in advance. And so if you, dear listener, uh, viewer, um, have an odd interest in contributing to this uh, scheduling and you have resources and you have knowledge about audio and you things that you want to try and help shape office hours, uh, you are welcome to communicate with us and join the audio council. And so for topics coming up, you know, we have uh, a pretty good list of things and you'll see them coming out in the weekly emails. Um, I'm thinking about uh, whether, whether viewers are interested in um, hearing from more um, musical artists and producers and engineers uh, to see what people are doing now, what isn't being an artist like in terms of uh, audio? Where where do their interests come in? What are their unique um, takes and perspectives on sound, whether they're 
uh, sound, unique sounds that they're producing that is part of their art, how, how they might be using uh, immersive sound, um, which comes to engineering and producing. Um, so that's something that I'm thinking about and wondering, you know, if that, if that's interest uh, for people watching as well. Absolutely. And just as kind of a general note, remember that office hours, we we do our best to do all levels of any topic that we talk about. We have specific shows that are tagged as beginner shows. We're looking to help educate people who don't know much about the industry and want to come in. So we also have intermediate topics where we kind of, it's, it's above a beginner's le level. You are expected to know some of the basics, but it kind of helps you transition to the next level. And then we have some topics that are truly expert level where we bring in world-class experts sometimes from the outside to help us understand a very complex topic and break it down into something that really helps everybody increase their knowledge and progress forward. So suggestions you make for topics can fit into any of those categories. It's not that you specifically have to keep them to basics or uh, you happen to sneak by one of our shows and we were talking about a very high-end thing, and that means we can only entertain high-end topics. We try to cover the gamut. Courtney, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to suggest uh, for one panel discussion is the little audio tools that you carry around, like the Swiss Army knife that oh, uh, yeah. all the audio guys carry. Little uh, plug-in boxes or, or problem solvers that you carry with you uh, in your bag to solve those little audio engineering problems like adapters and uh, active and passive components and so on. That might be a good subject. Absolutely. And I'm sure there are going to be plenty of others as we go along. We have a good little bit of questions here. And anybody else want to raise or flop a hand around on the panel before we dive into our audience questions? I'm not seeing anybody who's saying, yes, I desperately have a burning desire to talk about uh, root mean square and how to calculate it for audio levels. Uh, let's dive in then to our first question. All right, coming from uh, Samuel Nordvik in Norway, says dive into automation tools in Reaper. Reaper is a very popular program, and we hear its name mentioned a lot here. Jeff Francis. So this the the question that raises in my mind is: Is this a delve into automation in general, or is this he says diving into automation in Reaper? So this is kind of an intermediate level thing that under assumes that the viewer understands the basics of automation and wants to get really deep into Reaper. Um, so that this could be a, a inspire a basic show about automation generally, and then an intermediate or advanced show deeper into Reaper. I will tell you from somebody who's in the video one a lot, we have this kind of question come up, which is this particular person uses this particular tool. They will not be satisfied if we don't deal with that particular tool because they're not using other things and this is what they want to know about. And we discuss that and say, okay, can we sustain a program on just this one tool or does that tool fit into a range of questions and it would be better doing it as a let's survey everything, making sure that because it was driven by a request specifically for Reaper, that we have somebody on the panel who can address that part of the puzzle in depth. It's it's constantly we're balancing, you know, uh, we have one person who needs to know something. Does that is he is he or she representative of a lot of people? And if so, it may be sensible to do that particular tool and that particular thing. Uh, but the other thing is, well, if people are using other tools, we don't want to be so specific about the controls in Reaper that we don't talk about how to do that function like automation 
generically for most of the audio tools. So we talk about that a lot. These are topics that get discussed in the councils there. So thank you, uh, Samuel, for your idea. Ed, did you have a last thought before we move on? Uh, I think uh, just jumping on what Jeff said, uh, you know, maybe the sh- a show could be on basic automation, what's possible, because maybe people don't know even what you can automate in various DAWs and keep that kind of general. And then uh, a lab might make sense for a specific DAW oh. like Reaper or Logic or whatever. That makes sense because we have after hours going 24-7 around here. So we could set up a time and date and say we're going to talk about automation in general for the, you know, if there are enough hands raised for we want a class on Reaper, we would go looking for somebody who is particularly strong in that and do that as an after hours lab. That makes a lot of sense to me as well. Uh, Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from Jeff Francis right here on the panel in Columbia, South Carolina. He says, uh, a few second hour suggestions uh, with an expert who does location sound, Foley sound effects creation, and film scoring composition and film scoring recording. Also ADR and film mixing. Another reason. And for those of you who, yeah, who may not know as much about the language, um, Foley is that art of in movies, particularly replacing footsteps or replacing door creaks that might not have been recorded in the field at the resolution and with the uh, impact that you want. So we've all seen, I think, we had somebody on who does Foley. I think, uh, oh, wait, uh, who was it? Greg? One of our panelists who's been around for a long time spent a lot of Greg time Kermit. in Foley. Ed Curta, that's right. Um, Greg Curta uh, spent a lot of time in Foley stage, and it was fascinating to see that literally they had boxes full of different surfaces. And so if they're walking over sand or if they're walking over gravel, those things sound differently, and they replace those sound effects in the film to add another layer of reality to that. Um, Film scoring, I think, is understanding ADR, automated dialogue replacement. Again, another circumstance that saves a lot of circum- processes. If you've got a beautiful take and the extras looked fabulous and acted really, really well, and the director wants that take, yet there was a flub in one actor delivering his or her lines, and they can bring them back in, do ADR, and they can really loop a clean copy of that piece of dialogue over everything else, saving the whole sequence and meaning that they can use what the director wants to use. So those things are are big parts of the film industry. Uh, Marty Adius, your thoughts? Yeah, so it sounds like they're interest, uh, Jeff is interested in the entire process and sequence for film sound um, from capturing on location all the way through the finished product. And... Um, there's a lot of steps, and each one would be worthy of a second hour. And thank you very much for that suggestion. I agree wholeheartedly. Courtney, you had a thought before Jeff comes back to finish up? Yeah, I've done most of those except for the film composition, except for the music composition and scoring. Uh, I recorded uh, the Foley for the Blue Lagoon in a little wading pool, four-inch high wading pool. So it's your feet splashing through the water? Yes, instead it's of... my hands doing the sharks and all that stuff. <laughs> oh, nice. And we did the boat sinking in a guy's swimming pool in, in uh, Toluca Lake. Anyway, uh, another thing uh, that might be interesting, especially for ADR, uh, automatic automated dialogue replacement, which is what ADR stands for, uh, is to interview a current ADR a person and see if they're feeling threatened by all the tools that do a noise removal so that you can use the production dialogue as is so that you don't have to do ADR or B all the AI tools that are actually 
sampling the actor's voice and automatically replacing the dialogue with new lines. If uh, And a lot of times the director will go in and, you know, change the plot line of the movie and they'll have to lay in some ADR lines over someone's back uh, to, to change the progress of the plot with new dialogue. So uh, you don't have those original lines recorded anywhere. So that's necessary, and they can do that with AI now. And how good is it getting? And do the ADR mixers uh, and editors feel challenged by the new technology? That would be an interesting half hour, I mean. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. I'm also fascinated by dialogue replacement, particularly dubbing. I, I, it seems to me there's some sentences that are really quick in English, but that require like four times the words in a language like Spanish or something else. I wonder how they manage that. I wonder how they manage. Do they just speak very quickly? <laughs> that has always intrigued me. Jeff Francis, wrap it up for us. So last week we had uh, Alex's brother, uh, with the gimbal, uh, I can't remember the name of the product he was showing, um, but it was really kind of his whole kit. And he kind of talked the Trinity. Yes, I knew it was something with a try, um, and he kind of worked through his whole kit and talked about but his life and like physically how he needed to work with that and, and demonstrated it. So that kind of idea of like an intense hour with one person who is an expert in this, you know, that we go to a person who's a location sound and they show us their kit and they show us booming and, and miking actors and all that kind of thing. So, so the logistics of setting this up might be difficult because we need an expert and experts are working, you know, they're professionals. So getting them to give up that chunk of time and then potentially they need to be in a place where they actually can demonstrate this you know, so they need to be on a fully stage. And now you're asking a fully stage to give up its time. But but seeing, you know, each one of those with, you know, a, a person that's been doing this for for a decade or more, an expert in their field, like really dive into their to their kit and talk about what they do um, all through those different parts. Absolutely. Be fascinating. Courtney, you had a last thought before you move on. Um, yeah, yeah, the jackhammers are fully, fully jackhammers are starting outside <laughs> my door. So forgive me if I'm interrupted by this. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, now it actually is, but while the strikes are still on, Jeff, now is a good time to try and find people because there's a lot of studios and fully, you know, all post-production facilities and production sound mixers that are not working right now because of the strikes. So if the strikes continue, we might be pressed to, to add those to the list early on to get those kind of people in. There you go. Next question. Uh, coming from uh, Morgan Price in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, says sound design for audio dramas. Podcasts would be interesting for me and perhaps uh, another for the Krotos Audio. Yeah, I think sound design, you know, I I don't think a lot of people outside of the industry understands all the various levels. I think they can, they'll hear a word like you're the sound mixer on a set. Okay, I understand kind of what that is. Uh, Sound design is a little more... Uh, ephemeral, I think, for people not in the industry. Uh, Marty, thoughts? It's curious, uh, interesting thought here. I've been thinking about sound design for theater, which is which is a really deep thing to do. I mean, it's not mixing. It's like figuring out how to present audible concepts and translate that to in a way that the audience is can comprehend what's going on. That could be sound effects, it can be dialogue, it can be noises, it can be lots of different things. Um, I've been I've been attending a lot of 
high-end regional theater lately, and I am really, really stunned by the quality of the productions. And I've been inviting people to, uh, you know, to figure out a way how to get them on to talk about what they do. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think that would be really fascinating. I, you know, one of the things that's always blown me away is sound design for things like rides at amusement parks. I mean, you've got a, an audience that is moving through space and you have sound things, the monsters over there, but then as they're going by and if you've got them in some sort of circumstance, it just must be a very complex thing. And that also leads us into multi-channel and how you pan and move things around in spatial. A uh, lot of lot of topics worthy of exploration there. Let's go on to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Roberto Barrow in uh, Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. He says, how about an NDI? What is it and how to set it up? Audio over NDI, et cetera. The only thing I know for sure is I will not be speaking during that because I am still woefully ignorant about uh, NDI and how it works. But I know we have a lot of people on here for for whom that particular sound connection, that pathway, that ability to inject into the web using NDI resources, uh, audio content is their bread and butter every day. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great thing. I will probably learn a lot from it. Ed, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I use NDI a lot and for video, and then I use Dante a lot for audio. So uh, not often am I mixing the two other than sending Dante audio to embed onto an NDI source. Uh, so I think this would be kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, there are DAW plugins for NDI, and there's all sorts of uh, new audio tools that NDI is supporting. Um, but uh, in general, the overreaching kind of general topic of audio over IP is, uh, you know, a uh, I think a good, a good discussion. So, um, yeah, I think, this, very well I, think, taken. I think this could lead to multiple discussions, uh, you know, going through something like that. Yeah. I'll never forget years ago, my first, uh, I, I was at NAB and I was hired to do some work and uh, just video over IP. That's when it was coming in. It's the first time I had to, ever had to work in that circumstance. And even just getting signals across the place was unlike anything I'd ever been used to. I mean, up to that point, this is maybe what, seven, eight years ago, uh, you bring an audio line in and you could hear whether or not there was a signal there. <laughs> With some of the computer things, you plug it in and you go, it's not there. And you walk away to do something else. You come back five minutes later and all the computers have done all their handshaking. And suddenly the signal that wasn't there is there. It's just a whole new world with all this digital stuff, and it's important to keep up with it. So, yeah, I'd love to hear uh, how digital audio, this kind of stuff, and NDI transport works. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes in from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Calisto, New Mexico. He says, we've been, uh, we've talked a bunch about Dante, but I think it would be very cool to talk about different ways Dante can be leveraged for different production types, complexities, and styles. Jeff Francis. Yeah, so I could see this being uh, sort of uh, an example of use cases. Um, People bring in and spend, you know, five minutes each talking about a particular use case of Dante and talking about how they've handled uh, primary, secondary, how how they've handled their network setup. Is it a daisy chain, a star configuration? How are they handling IP addresses depending on that particular production type from very small to very large? Um, so, uh, yeah, that'd be a, an awesome day. 
Um, especially if we get uh, a lot of contribution, we get one F Jeff in here with his large Dante setups and, uh, I'm sure Ed's got some, he's smiling. Um, I've got some, uh, some different ones, use cases. So that'd be cool. Ed Willick. Uh, yeah, Jeff, uh, bringing in one F Jeff, I've worked on some of his Dante networks and, uh, uh, just everybody should make sure they have their coffee or whatever they need to stay alert because <laughs> it can get uh, can get complex really quick. Uh, but no, I think Dante, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, my work is mainly in live event and I'm using it literally every day that I'm working as the audio person. Um, it involves a lot of networking. So I think uh, I think diving into it um, and uh, the different ways it gets used. Uh, I have a pretty extensive Dante network here at home. Uh, I think it would be great to have a second hour, but also, like I said, I mentioned before with something else, like maybe schedule a lab to follow up the discussion. Um, cause I think Jeff's idea of people showing their, uh, their Dante use cases would be great. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a very, very deep, rich topic that we could go into for a very long time. Marty, your thoughts. Oops, you're muted. I do work with uh, smaller production companies, um, and there seems to be, and, and I often, and they're not Dante, and I've been talking with them about using Dante, using NDI, um, and, and there seems to be a point at, uh, of, at which it becomes beneficial and a point at which it just becomes more complexity than is worth it. And so talking about that difference can be, uh, can be interesting. And it's interesting, you know, we're talking networking as much as we're talking audio in these things. So I know I could always brush up on more basics about networking, how packets get sent across, how handshakes take place. All of those things that used to be only for the computer folks now are suddenly for the audio people and for the video people and for everybody else. So I would think that basic network topologies or how how things function might be a, a good add-on but great idea so far let's go to the next question next comes in from samuel nordvik in norway he says a comparison of different digital audio workstations for different uh uses yeah i don't know enough about these i'm wondering if any of the audio experts jeff francis raised a hand here so great so let's oh i'm sorry i, I click marty first so marty uh you toss in and then we'll go to jeff and courtney after that marty yeah, there are uh, you know any number of DAWs out there. I mean, more than I'm aware of. But you know, the the, the most used ones are Pro Tools and Reaper and Studio One, um, and and many others. Uh, I do suppose that some of them have uh, are more popular with certain program genres. Uh, Pro Tools is very popular with video uh, and with uh, film and with music as well. Um, uh, Studio One is also very popular and has its its loyal following. It's what I've been using. Um, I'm, it, it's very likely that, that some have certain features that lend themselves better to certain types of work. That would be a really nice uh, topic to explore. Jeff Francis. Yeah, again, that could be a could be a use case. People bringing in, you know, we get someone who's a, who's a Logic user. Uh, Logic has a, a lot of strengths in in virtual instruments that are included with it. Uh, we could bring in people that uh, make beats in FL Studio or use Ableton Live, even in performance. Um, so there's there's definitely use cases. They're all 
you know, word processors for audio. Um, some of them do different tasks better than others. Courtney. Yeah, it's pretty well been covered here. That yeah, there are a plethora of digital audio workstations, many of them built into synths uh, that actually have workstations built into their firmware. Uh, but for music recording or for mastering or for mix down or for you know uh, synthesis. Uh, there's lots of individual digital audio workstations for all of those, uh, and some of and some pieces of software deal with all of them. Next question, coming in from uh, Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. How about a deep dive on Dante with a lab? Kind of covered that, but yeah, I've been heading that direction. Ed Willick, you have another thought? Uh, yeah, I want to apologize to uh, uh, Adrian that uh, I did not read ahead to see that you posed that, and I didn't mean to take your thunder, but I think it's a great idea. <laughs> well, great minds think alike, and that's just adding more weight to the fact that there is interest in this. So this is a good thing. Let's get to the next question. Uh, coming in from uh, Jack Rappel in Brackenridge, Colorado. He says, stereoscopic videography, immersive video, audio, including binaural, 5.1 spatial for initial view, 120-degree view, subsequent views outside the YouTube crop. So Marty Adius, this is obviously kind of the audio for video kind of generic. We got so much more capability here. So you want to address this? Uh, yeah, so we are trying to talk about uh, immersive and surround um, probably about once a month. Uh, we've already established that within the audio council to try and cover that um, in in one of the different subtopics, like uh, like a, a luminary or a subject or a, a vendor. In, you know, some way we're going to try and cover spatial and immersive audio once a month. But uh, if there's anything specific that somebody wants to cover, or if anybody has contacts with a certain vendor or certain engineer um, who works in this that they think would be, uh, uh, want to talk about what they do and, and can bring them forward, please, please do so and, and let us know who they are. Yeah, that's actually a really good note here to expand upon just very briefly. Um, Monday tends to be our business topics days, and these are kind of broad categories. Um, uh, Tuesday is computer graphics and things like that. Wednesday, here we are on Wednesday, is the, our audio days. We kind of focus on audio. Thursday is video. And Friday is a little more catch-all. We, we tend to throw more different topics in there, but it's also uh, just in terms of the, the t technical and building side of kits and things like that. So those are kind of generally our focuses. Saturday is more a generic, you know, we've had our educators in and it's kind of a more specific vertical, although our first hour is a general thing for answering questions as well. And then Sunday is not broadcast on YouTube, so it's more introspection and we tend to be a little more opinionated, I would say, uh, during those days because it's not for the long-term record. But those are the general topics of kind of how the week has broken up. That doesn't mean you can't ask a general question. You can certainly ask a video question on Monday if that's your uh, point of view. You will just generically find more expertise aimed at these things. I mean, here we are on Wednesday and more of our audio people like Jeff and Marty here. Uh, and so we get additional expertise. That's kind of how the, the system works now. But yeah, um, more questions, more better. And wherever they come from, Jeff, you had a... Oh, I'm sorry. Ed, Ed wanted to start with this one. Ed? 
Or did I, did I already do it? I probably got distracted. I'm sorry about that. Jeff Francis. No, you haven't read the question yet. They moved on to the next question. Oh, they oh, moved sorry. to the next one. That's what was confusing me. I'm sorry yeah. about that. I, sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's go to the next question. Go ahead and read it. All right. This one's from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisto, New Mexico. Uh, and he asked about monitor mixing, how to think about uh, how to build a system for uh, making the best monitor mix for a music or a theatrical production, you know, where the Man. musicians say, you got to turn me up more. In the <laughs> Ed's going to start us off, Ed. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I do a lot of monitor mixing for live music um, when I'm doing my summer festival work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about signal flow and routing and, um, you know, how are you splitting your signal? Um, are you splitting your signal? First of all, I mean, I know a lot of uh, people work in the house of worship market and they might be doing monitor mixing from the same front of house console. But whenever possible, I try to split those out so that we have separate monitor mixers uh, for the artists uh, and the talent. Um, I also, if we're using ears, I'm always looking at like keeping the, uh, sorry, in-ear monitors, like uh, something directly fed. Uh, I'm looking at getting the lowest latency possible for those artists. Um, so that's why we do splits, uh, you know, take a separate feed into the console uh, instead of routing from front of house back to a monitor console. We'll do a split ahead of time or at least the ability to digitally gain share or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think about how can I get the uh, the least latency um, and how do I keep those systems uh, separate from front of house if I can. I uh, hope that's kind of what he was looking for. Yeah, hopefully. Well, it, it's certainly something to add to the topics list of things to go over later on. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing. And monitor mixing is so much different than front of house mixing. Sorry. Maybe, yeah, maybe I, I shouldn't be answering the question. I should be talking about how this is better for a show. Uh, I think a monitor mixing show would be great. It's a very different approach. Okay. Uh, Courtney wanted to weigh in. I think Jeff was here earlier, but I think maybe it was covered. So Yeah, uh, and... Ed covered most of the spots, but, you know, in comparison of wedge mixing, which is the wedge speakers that are sitting in front of musicians versus in-air monitors, and a lot of people have moved to in-air monitors, and it has certainly changed the game as far as mix levels and front-of-house mixing because they're not having to deal with sound coming out of wedges uh, that are contaminating the mix. So uh, talking about the, the transition to in-air monitors for everybody versus the old school of wedge monitors in front of everyone would be an interesting topic, too. Plus, I would imagine it's better for the artist's hearing not to have to be in the midst of a loud monitor mix and very close to those big tower stacks. Ed, any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, yeah, just, yeah, like talking uh, to uh, add to what Courtney said, like talking about feedback, because uh, in monitor mixing, that is a bigger portion of uh, when it's on wedges. That's a bigger portion of the job uh, in the setup is is ringing out wedges, which is something you're not worrying about if people are all on in-ears or like we do in, in studio stuff um, and video productions. We're not necessarily working worrying about live speakers uh, into microphones as much. So, yeah, I think that would be a cool thing to talk about. Next topic. Next question. Okay, Dave Brady in New York City says learning and training the ear to identify frequencies. Ear training, been around for a long time. I remember hearing my first records, I think, it was an LP or a tape or something uh, about this is what a uh, lifted ground sounds like. <laughs> at some point or another, everybody who goes through the audio process has to learn what certain sounds sound like so you can identify them as a problem. Courtney, your thoughts? 
Yeah, and to tie into that, going to an audiologist and having your hearing charted to let you know if you have any deficiencies at certain frequencies, because that can certainly be the case if you shoot guns uh, as a hobby or you were in the Navy. Uh, you can have a lot of deficiencies at certain frequencies if you were exposed to certain frequencies uh, growing up. Uh, you could find that you have several holes in your hearing uh, capability. So go to an audiologist, and then you'll have to learn how to compensate and train your ear to listen for f those frequencies that are your deficiency in or get hearing aid. Ed Willick. Yeah, uh, I mean, just talking, the last thing I added about feedback, again, I should be reading ahead a little further. Um, you know, that's something that uh, we do uh, to, to be able to quickly notch out feedback when I'm doing monitor mixing and things like that. Um, there are tools and apps um, that are designed for that, some paid, some free. And I get this question from... Um, people who I work with doing um, live corporate events who have now, maybe they were video people who have moved to doing some breakout rooms and they have to do a little audio and video that ask me, hey, how can I train my ear on uh, being able to ring out a room and ring out feedback? Uh, so yeah, there's apps that, I, uh, that, I, that I've been just sharing, you know, uh, whether you find them on the uh, Play Store or the uh, I, you know, Apple uh, App Store. So uh, yeah, I think that this is something that people kind of need as uh, as they are moving maybe from doing more in-studio stuff to out-in-the-field stuff. And one of the things, you know, we've spent a lot of time working here at Office Hours to get a good audio chain between what we send out and what you're able to hear. So we could probably show examples. Here's what, you know, this particular anomaly sounds like, and people actually could get a, a sense of it. And so hopefully we'll be able to do a little more of that. Let's go into the next question. Comes in from Douglas Carmichael, and he asks about immersive audio tools like Lacoustics from LISA Studio. Ed. Yeah, I think this is something um, that could definitely be talked about. Uh, immersive sound uh, in live events is somewhat of a growing, uh, though slowly, industry. Um, I know we talk a lot about here about Dolby and different immersive. Uh, I know Ambisonics has been getting very... Uh, popular uh, topic of discussion lately. Um, it, and it's it's available in live event. Um, it's just super expensive to implement. So, um, and there's more than just L Acoustics. Um, there's, you know, there's a few high-end manufacturers that are doing this. So uh, it's definitely something to talk about. But uh, even I think last week I heard Alex say, you know, in, in like live concert, it's very difficult and it's very, very, very cost prohibitive. So uh, uh, it's a very esoteric sort of... Uh, topic but uh definitely worth exploring especially since we look at it on the consumer audio you know video production immersive audio kind of landscape here very often well we're all wondering whether apple's vision pro which is the first kind of immersive reality from a company of that stature who has the marketing muscle to get those out there no one knows what the future of that is going to be but we're right on the cusp of them being out in the wild uh, I think mostly developers will have them first, but they'll be working on things. And for anybody wanting to develop for it, they have immersive tools built into that platform. And if that platform takes off, then there may be a tremendous need for engineers who can work in this multi-mode immersive audio environment. So uh, maybe a good place to be heading if you're looking at that. Let's go to the next question. This one comes from Samuel Nordvik in Norway, says a intermediate walkthrough of a post of post-processing audio tools. Jeff Francis. So I think this is kind of already in the planning for the intermediate level of things is, but 
broken up by category of tools. So you really can't cover all of them in one intermediate hour. So, you know, dynamics, processing, compressors, limiters, expanders, gates, one half hour, second hour, sorry. Uh, and then equalization, one second hour intermediate dive. Reverb, yeah. one second hour intermediate dive. Those are such broad, you know, you could spend whole college courses probably on some of those things because there's so much nuance that that makes sense on the intermediate level. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisto, New Mexico. Recording. Let's dive into the aesthetics of recording. Where's the microphone? How's the room treated? How does the effect, how does that affect the experience of the listener? And how does the aesthetics of the record affect the mix? Jeff Francis. So you mentioned aesthetics twice. So that's important to you. And uh, it's important to me too, because it's, it's appreciating the art underneath it. And that's really, for me, that's what recording is about getting out of the way of the art. And uh, so this would be a great topic. I think this would be a, a highly uh, philosophical day. Maybe it's a Sunday. I don't know. There are no second hours on Sunday, so let's keep it on Wednesday, but let's let it be philosophical. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And I remember listening to people, and I think that I know some guys who could probably spend three or four full hours on kick drum recording, period, full stop. That's all, you know, they would talk at length about how to, uh, how to mic it, what mics to use. I mean, it's just, and that's just for one instrument of a drum kit inside a band. Uh, Courtney, some thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, this would be interesting, especially for film film recording, production film recording, because of the aesthetics of the audio. We used to do uh, what you know what's called camera perspective. In other words, the microphone would match the perspective of the viewer depending upon the wideness of the shot. An extreme close up, the microphone would be in much closer, and a wide shot would be further away. You'd hear more of the room. These days, they're putting wireless mics on everyone and creating that aesthetics in post production if they can. Um, or they're recording on a boom and wireless mics, and it's up to the post-production mixer to create the aesthetics to match the cinematography. So that would be an interesting second hour. Absolutely, Ed Willick. Yeah, uh, having built a couple of recording studios, um, this is uh, definitely something that's interesting. Um, and, you know, uh, room treatment is like a huge thing when you're actually um, building a room and considering a room that's going to be a, a purpose uh you know, recording specific space and dedicated to that. So, uh, yeah, this is a definitely an interesting, uh, topic. Uh, I, I, I agree with Jeff. I think it, it, um, uh, I actually, sorry, I agree with what Jeff said kind of on the last thing. It might be so multifaceted that it requires, you know, like you talk about, you know, the mic, where's the microphone as, as far as microphone placement. And then another that is like, what do we do about room treatments? And, um, and talking about aesthetics, like Jeff mentioned, we're talking about that's that's translation. How does your sound in the room and space that you're creating in translate to other rooms and spaces that are not treated the same way as yours? So, yeah, great, great topic to uh, to talk about. Lots of meat there. Marty. And there's studio recording versus live performance recording. And there's music versus other audio, speech, et cetera. Um, all different types of processing and different different ways to approach them. And then whether you're planning on producing your piece as a 
stereo mix or an immersive mix and perspective, as Courtney was saying, is going to be really important. Um, this is a this this can be a very deep topic, and um, I think there are lots of different people who might want to contribute to this. That's great. Let's go to the next question. From Jack uh, Rappel in Breckenridge, Colorado, Alex's experience with ambisonic mic and his Scorpio mixer recorder. I'm sure Alex is more than willing to share that on audio day at some point. I know that he's still experimenting and, and uh, having all sorts of fun doing it. He's very passionate about this subject. So I think there's almost a sure thing that we will continue talking about it in the future on some of our on audio day or something close to it. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, USB microphones. And Paul probably has the largest collection of USB microphones of anybody on the panel. Paul is known for his mic collection. Every time he shows up, he seems to have something new. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, it used to be that that, that all microphones generically were either uh, balanced XLR-fed, which was most of the professional microphones, and then you had the little two-pin uh, 3.5-millimeter mics for recorders and things like that. And those were the only two. Now, with the digital interface of USB being built into many microphones, there's a whole bunch of new stuff to think about in that all-digital pathway. Jeff Francis, what say you? Oops, you're still zooming. Two here. things I might add to the expansion of USB microphones is, is anyone using multiple amounts of USB microphones, multiple numbers, you know, multi-tracking USB. That's a that's ah. a whole can of worms right there. Uh, and I know all the audio people on this panel are cringing at the moment at the thought of that because I, I am speaking the words. Um, but there's also um, higher order ambisonics microphones that have a USB that includes, you know, something like 16 or 19 elements or 46 elements that are encoded from that higher order ambisonics mic. So that I don't think that's the USB microphones Paul is talking about, but it falls under the category of USB microphones. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you change from analog to digital processing all the way through, I didn't even realize that was possible to do multiple microphones because this idea of, for me, USB has always been people plug in a USB mic to their computer. And as soon as Jeff said multi-mic arrays, I went, oh, how, how does that even work? How does it know which ones are which? So obviously, if there are ambisonics, there's a way to do this digitally encoding many microphones into one signal. But boy, that's beyond my level of expertise. So it'd be interesting. Let's go to the next question. Next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, merging technologies, Anubis, and other AES-67 uh, Ravina solutions. And he has a link there to the uh, merging technologies website. Let's go to Jeff Francis first. Jeff? We talk a lot about Dante. It's important to remember that we need to talk about audio over IP because there are both competing and AES-67 is trying to be a open source uh, or open uh, format. Uh, so it's, it's a good idea to keep all of those in mind. And probably we need to spend some time talking about how we translate and interface with between Dante and Ravenna systems. Ed Willick. Oh yeah. I was going to pretty much same, say a similar thing to Jeff. Uh, Ravenna is just another, uh, protocol, another way that digital audio, uh, speaks over a network uh, it uses uh, typically an AES-67 uh, backbone, which Dante also supports. So um, how do these things talk together? Um, but as far as, 
uh, this specific uh, interface, you know, it's it it is a Ravenna native um, instead of being a Dante native uh, uh, transmission protocol. So, um, you know, it would just talk to things similarly. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. But I think what Jeff was talking about the audio over IP in general and how to maybe merge, not merging as the this product, but merge those bridge those networks. Um, and uh, and do those conversions uh, is a is a pretty good topic to talk about. Let's go to the next question. Comes in from uh, Tony Mobley in Newman, Georgia. He says, "Will there be an opportunity to audit the audio of selected panelists to determine the next steps in their audio evolution?" Ah, when somebody says ruthless reviews are coming back, some of us perspire profusely. Jeff Francis, what's a yeah, that's what that's that's what this is, ruthless review. So I'm sure it'll be back. It's 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 a question of who shows up that day when they see that on the calendar. Yeah. Uh, also it's interesting, you know, we we spent a lot of time and energy in our first and half at least of the second year of the show here talking about that because I think Alex was generally shepherding us all to a higher level with the vision in mind of being able to pass along really good quality audio. The Zoom tools and other tools on the internet are getting better and better for this, so it matters whether um, you have a good quality microphone that is in a noise-free system and is putting out seriously usable audio uh, because people can hear it on the other end now where they might not have been able to do that. And, and right at the beginning of the pandemic was everybody was running home as fast as they could and using whatever microphones they had. So the continuous process of improvement, I'm sure will always be a part of office hours. And so, yeah, Tony, we'll, we'll definitely put ruthless audio reviews returning and uh, see what it sounds like. Next question. Coming in from Galisto, New Mexico, from Tlalic Lopez Waterman. He says, uh, this touches on a few disciplines, but let's get into how we can leverage show control for audio automation, uh, MIDI show control, and others. So automating the process, I would imagine, uh, you know, there's so many pieces of this Um Allowing mics, you know, turning mics on and off, uh, setting levels and things like that. There's a lot of automation processes and protocols to determine that that are getting more and more popular out there. Jeff Francis, what are your thoughts? I, th I think this day would be amazing if we could get a behind the scenes tour of, say, a Broadway show where oh, we can look can at the show control that goes into that um, and not just audio, but but all of the show control, or or uh, a pop dance uh, tour. Uh, you know, there's been a been a fairly large one traversing the country, uh, changing changing the face of transportation in most major cities as she goes from place to place with 46 semis. Um, <laughs> but there's some amazing show control going on there that that is lights and projection and IMAG and staging and uh, MIDI and playback tracks and audio mixing and and all of those things. And I'm sure I've missed a few. So. Somebody, I remember seeing just a, those people, so. a still image on Broadway of row after row of small containers. And as the Broadway cast would come off, their body packs, probably just their mic packs, but maybe Mike and IFB or something like that if they need to be cued, uh, 
and just there were probably 70 or 80 individual wireless areas. And you can imagine having to mix characters coming off, characters going back. They need to be muted until they go on stage. and They need to be unmuted at exactly the right point. I mean, all of that control is just very complex in a very complex show uh, with enters and exits. And I would imagine that what they're talking about, obviously alluding to the Taylor Swift monster concert that's out there, um, that... I can't imagine the number of audio cues that are there uh, in a in a really complex show. Uh, it must be just mind-boggling, and I'd love to get a look at how that actually happens. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next question comes in from Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. He says, how about the delving more into just mastering audio for video? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we don't talk about mastering all that much, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, after all the recording gets done and after all the mixing gets done, one of the final uh, stages and things, particularly for the making of records and I think tapes and things like that, was the last touch was the mastering engineer. And their job was to take all the work that had been done before and equalize or uh, optimize it for what it was going to be sold on so that it sounded the best it could possibly uh, be, even on something that is not purely digital, like an analog record pressing, to just make sure that everything was right. The voice was at the right level versus music and the rest of that. So these mastering engineers were highly prized uh, to be able to make a great sounding last step before it went out as a commercial product. Courtney, your thoughts? Yes, and with everything moving to streaming, this has become even more complex because not only do you have to do the mastering for theatrical release like Atmos and then stereo and then 5.1 and 7.1 and all the different compression formats that you have to deal with and whether or not they they handle uh, immersive audio or not, uh, it's just a quagmire of different formats and different solutions and different file types. Uh, I hate to even think, my my brain hurts right now. Just think of it. Yeah, I actually run into that a little bit with my distribution out of commercials and other programming. Uh, You know, who knows where it's going to end up? It could end up on an over-the-top service like Hulu. It could end up on a small broadcast station that is still, you know, in in a very small market running a mono audio signal out. It could end up in a 5.1 theater. It could end up in so many different places. So uh, being able to set various audio mixes um, out has been a very big part of what I've had to learn how to do. And thankfully, there's some tools built into programs like this. One of the things Final Cut does particularly well because it has a thing called audio rolls that says you can set up in advance a whole series of rules-based things and take your main file and it will collapse it into all the correct just delivery formats. Boy, say can save weeks worth of mixing time at the back end of that. So, yeah, uh, mastering is its own big topic. And so thank you for bringing it up. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes in from uh, Breckenridge, Colorado. And Jack Rappel wants to know uh, about or suggest incorporating audio beyond the range of human hearing in visualization, 2D video, stereo video, and virtual reality. Mixing for dogs or something? That's interesting. Jeff, Francis, you have some thoughts? I'm just wondering if Jack wants to see what we cannot hear. Oh, that's interesting. Wants to take uh, ultrasonic and potentially infrasonic information and 
display it in some way. Oh, you got to go out and record some bats? That would be fun. <laughs> Marty? Well, we, we do know that humans can sense frequencies that we cannot hear. Um, the question is whether the medium that we're transmitting over can include those frequencies. Ah. If it's broadcast television, there is a frequency limit. Nothing above that limit goes out. If it's a recording um, of a high enough bandwidth and in resolution, then yeah, it's possible. Um, live performance, absolutely. Uh, records, maybe not CDs or DVDs because of the frequency cutoff. But yeah, there's there's definitely stuff that we can sense that we cannot hear. Wasn't there a lot of discussion on like a violin recording and the overtones and the fact that you have doublings and doublings and some people feel like you really need to capture the entire bandwidth way up beyond technical human hearing? I, I heard that debate a lot. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, uh, Courtney and Let, Let's Ed, not open that can of worms. Okay, that's a bit too much. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Courtney, real quick. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's you know, in digital audio, there's problems with quantization brick wall filters uh, that limit the uh, high frequency uh, recording of anything so that it doesn't interfere or beat against uh, other things or create quantization errors. So you're going to have to deal with that. So there's not too much of it except in instrumentation recording, maybe visualizing instrumentation recording for scientific purposes. Ed? Uh, to, to go back to what Marty was saying, on the opposite side of the spectrum is limitations of what can be captured uh, besides playback. Uh, you know, not every microphone can get into those high frequencies uh, above human hearing, above 20K, or lower frequencies below 20 hertz. So um, getting those things faithfully captured uh, proves difficult. But uh, it's an interesting concept because there are things that we perceive that are above and below our uh, our threshold for hearings. And they say that, you know, uh, they say babies, with, when they have the soft spot on the top of the head, that they can perceive things as high as maybe 40K. So it's, uh, it's oh. you know, it's definitely an interesting concept to talk about, but uh, there are definitely limitations we have to keep in mind. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, he says, higher-end consoles like Digico, SD, Quantum, SSL Live, and LAWO, MC2, etc. Ed, you want to mention? Uh, yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, this is a, an interesting topic to talk about as well. Um, most of those consoles, uh, with the exception of the MC2, are mostly um, live performance consoles, uh, you know, doing live events. Um, but yeah, deep dives into what makes them, you know, different, you know, it could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it could get into, uh, it's going to be very opinion-based. Uh, depending on the person who is talking, its preferences of what you like, what you don't like, um, things like that. But yeah, cool, cool topic. Marty, quick mention. Yeah, there are certain uh, manufacturers and even certain models that are built specifically for broadcast audio in a truck, for theater, for uh, broadcast studio, for radio, for television. Um, so that's an interesting aspect. What makes uh, the difference in a console for each use case. 
Let's go to the next question. From Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Um, he's, uh, wants a half an hour on covert audio recording. In other words, the law, the FBI, the CIA, and Hollywood, and the history of the technology and how it's done with parabolic mics, hidden body mics, laser shooting windows, etc. Oh, interesting topic. Courtney, thoughts on it? Yeah, the equipment is is quite interesting in the variety when we move from analog to digital. Uh, the equipment changed. Nagra had, you know, the SN recorder, which was originally designed for the CIA for covert recording. And uh, there were some tiny little recorders that used tapes that were digital that were about the size of a postage stamp. Uh, quite amazing. Uh, Sony NT1. Per, so it would be an interesting half hour stroll down uh, memory lane of the clandestine recorders. And there's people out there who collect all of this stuff. So yeah, it might also be useful to talk a little bit about recording in the law, because I know one of the difficulties I run into is that the laws are different state to state in some cases. How many people need to be uh, consenting on a phone call, for example, in order for that call to be recorded? So there's a lot of um, interface between regulation and law and covert recording. So, Marty, last thought? Yeah. Here in D.C., we have the Spy Museum, which has a lot of that stuff on display. Uh, maybe I'll go and talk to them. There you go. Let's go to the next question. From Austin, Texas, and Paul Wallace, uh, mobile sound studio design. Boy, more and more of those. Jeff. Well, from my world, uh, doing classical location recording, we often take whatever room we can find and turn it into a control room for a recording studio. You know, not not the place where the musicians are, but we are listening environment. So uh, I'm I'm excited by this topic. I'm not sure if it's exactly what Paul had in mind, because there's a lot of ways to do mobile uh, studios. There are trucks uh, that are mobile studios. Um, I think those are, are a little less because of the prevalence and the ease of plugging a laptop into Dante and just capturing all the tracks and not having to uh, have Le Mobile roll up outside. There you go. Next question. Douglas Carmichael again, playback management and operation for live events, Ableton, QLab, et cetera. Uh, Jeff Francis. I think a, a hour and potentially an hour plus lab on QLab would be amazing because QLab has more than just audio features. It's got video, MIDI, lighting control. So that would be fabulous. And Ed Willick. I 100% agree with Jeff. Uh, you know, we could do a deep dive just on QLab uh, as far as playback management, um, and then diving into the other options: Ableton, QLab, SCS. You know, there's a there's a bunch out there. So, uh, we'll do one more question. Next question. Okay, uh, from uh, Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand. Advanced mix pre configuration could fit in with ambisonic second hour. Or maybe more of an after-hours session, because uh, we know we've always been dealing with the mix pre with Mickey and trying to configure it for ourselves. It's, it can take hours. And just because your question didn't get into this hour as we ran here toward the end, I'm going to try to end on time today to uh, honor our backstage crew who all are doing other things in their life as well. Uh, we have more topics coming up. Boom arms for Mike, uh, Paul Wallace put in. Uh, Douglas Carmichael was interested in automatic mixing like Lawu for kick drums and stuff like that. There were three or four other topics uh, in the back. And remember, we 
keep track of them all. They were part of the show, so we will uh, make note of that. Tomorrow, we are going to be talking about camera rigging. So if you're interested in how uh, we use all sorts of stuff to build a rig in the field for recording, that's our topic tomorrow. On Friday, we're talking to the folks from Puget Systems, high-end computers for production. Saturday, as always, two hours of Q&A. And on Sunday, we deal with introspection, kind of take a deeper dive into philosophical things. It's not sent off onto YouTube, so that means that we can talk a little bit more uh, artistically, philosophically, about the topics that come up in the show. Our thanks, as always, to each and every one of you who interact with the show. That includes all of you who ask questions during the show, our producers. We literally couldn't do this without your questions, and today was an excellent example of that. Uh, we were here to hear from you, and you responded in kind, as you always do, with a bunch of great suggestions. Uh, that'll help drive things. We mentioned that we have uh, teams that are in the back end of, of the show, uh, the councils who deal with the various topic days, so uh, you've given them a lot of fodder to think about, and it's possible, if you're interested in contributing more to the show, for you to volunteer for one of those panels. So it all starts with the website. Start there and you can go on from there. Uh, don't forget, thank you to panelists. Our audio team of audio experts here today could not do this without everybody bringing their expertise and panelists show up every day. Our uh, crew in back end doing an amazing job in the back. After Hours runs 24-7. That takes care of us today. It's time to roll credits. Thanks for watching. Thank you, everybody, for showing up and doing such a great show. Appreciate it. Lots of good ideas to follow up on. How does this thing work? Why can I not hear dialogue in movies anymore? Because everybody's whispering.